Liberty Lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show This episode of Liberty Lockdown is brought to you by our new sponsor, and that is Rained Out Rantcast. You can go to rainedoutrantcast.com. If you're looking for a podcast with a comedic look at fake news and current events, check out Chris at the Rained Out Rantcast, supplying you with conspiratorial laced rants and opinions about squeaky gates, mob doctors, Parmesan crack smoking presidential kids, and more. He is uh, our first sponsor of the show. So uh, wanted to thank him. Make sure you guys check him out. This ad was actually bought for Rained Out Rantcast by at Andy, not Adam. I wanted to give him a special shout out for being so gracious and kind to help uh, fellow content creators out there. It's, it humbles me that people enjoy my show enough that they would actually donate money just so I could run an ad for someone else that they don't even know. Talk about beautiful. So make sure you follow Andy and make sure you subscribe to Rained Out Rantcast wherever your podcasts are sold. Let's get into the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. I have a, another special guest with me today. Uh, we found each other early on as the, the lone voices that were pushing back against lockdowns. He's a cognitive scientist, and his name is Mark Changizi. Welcome aboard. Uh, great to be here. Thanks, man. So you sent me over a really interesting uh, idea Honestly, you're, you're one of the few people that I encounter that I'm confident is more intelligent than myself. So I'm just going to let you explain it. <laughs> are you talking about FreeX or which thing are you talking about? Yeah, you had sent me the, the FreeX was what prompted us to do this interview. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll start with FreeX. So FreeX is uh, the free expression group or FreeX.group is a new research think tank kind of institute that my colleague Tim Barber and I have started. And it's devoted to the study and research of free expression and the expression of the importance of free expression in a free society. And that, you know, we come at it from a particularly unique angle. Uh, you know, we're sort of mathematicians and, and, and I have a long history of both my PhD was in mathematics, but um, I've studied you know, things in psych psychology and, and, and culture and understanding the interaction of psychology and culture from a very rigorous sorts of perspectives. Um, so we're kind of uniquely positioned to look at the kinds of emergent phenomena and the effects of free expression and what, how you can get free expression up and running uh, based on the kind of research we've been doing over the last decade in the book that's coming out is, um, next year called Unmasked, Why We Express Emotions. And, uh, and sort of it's, it's part and parcel about why we have free expression and what it's good for. But really the motivation for this, you know, in addition to being just always something that we need but the, you know, the last year of COVID and the hysteria that we've gone through was really the, the kick in the pants uh, for why I was why this should be the next research direction for me. Whereas I could have gone in many directions. You know, it just it seems like it, the world needs this. We need this. Okay. And and what exactly will that research entail? And and what are you trying to do with it? Yeah. So, you know, uh, uh, some of the problems that hit us last so. There's a bunch of, bunch of new uh, institutes that came out over the last year. Uh, yeah, yeah. Pan Data is, is one with uh, Nick Hudson. Uh, it's sort of also behind the, the Great Barrington uh, uh, resolution, sort of helped organize these folks and brought them together. Uh, Rational Ground is another uh, a group of, uh, of folks. And a lot of these, and there's other groups that are just, you know, a lot of the 
smart data scientists and epidemiologists have come together trying to uh, make sense of the data and show that a lot of the alarm and, and a lot of the, the supposed claims about both the dangers of COVID and the uh, benefits of the interventions are all radically exaggerated, right? And that's fine. Part of the story that we need to unravel this and, and hopefully, you know, undo it and, you know, get, get back to normal is, is pointing out that their data has been all wrong. But really the problem that's been hitting us isn't a data problem. It's not a science problem. It's not a biological contagion problem. It's, as I had tweeted more than a year ago, um, the moral of coronavirus won't be, the moral, moral of coronavirus will be that uh, social contagion, you know, or social media contagion is more dangerous than biological contagion. What we've been really suffering through is a kind of madness of crowds and a breakdown of the decentralized distributed mechanisms that, you know, govern how societies move slowly towards the truth. And we move slowly toward the truth by having not centralized fact checkers and censor, you know, censorship, but we do this by virtue of having sort of reasonably well-structured reputation networks where folks who say true things rise in reputation and because they are expressing true things and giving great confidence to what they're saying and if they're found out to be true and people who are trash talkers and saying you know, and or saying false things together slowly lose reputation over time. Mm -hmm. These things were radically broken uh, uh, even prior to COVID, um, partly because the mechanisms within social media don't allow the full range of expressions that we evolved to have that allow these social networks and reputation networks to work like they're supposed to, partly because they're just massive. Instead of having a several hundred people in your tribe where you can sort of do these things that, you, you know, you've got several orders of magnitude, four or five orders of magnitude more than you should. And of course, once, so, and, and even if those were well-functioning, of course, things can still go wrong. You know, there's these small tribes where they just suddenly decide that Judy's the witch and then her and her all her children have to be, you know, burned. You know, obviously stuff still bad happens, but, you know, it, but still it's better than, than the, the witch doctor making all decisions about who's a witch. It's, it's still usually preferable to have these decisions made in a decentralized manner. Right. Um, and of course, once COVID hit and the mass hysteria hit, you had a, the reason that it broke. There's a, there's a long story as to why it broke, but you ended up with positive feedback loop between people being afraid of, of a pandemic and intellectuals were afraid of the pandemic and politicians were afraid of the pandemic and, and all of the rep high reputation sources that you heard of and you know, journalists are telling you the same thing. This is dangerous, this is super dangerous to be afraid. And politicians then become afraid. And each of these, these sources are progressively scaring the next in, in this positive contagious feedback loop. Uh, and instead of it just happening in Iran, where my family comes from, where they end up with a, you know, women having to wear head, you know, headscarves for 40 years and can't undo that, or you know, in various countries where these sorts of mass hysterias happen, this time it went global, and there's really very, very few places to run because the world is connected to one small network diameter, uh, uh, you know, network. So you know, those are the kinds of forces that we really want to understand at FreeX, and. Um, you know, what triggers them? How do you come up with mechanisms in social media, uh, it, both the structures of, of the mechanisms, the individual kinds of personal, you know, personal responsibility that individuals may in fact have that can help uh, limit the spread of these sorts of things. And generally, how can you understand the sort of the physics of these psychosocial events? Gotcha. Well, it, it, I, I don't doubt at all the contagion impact and the effects that you're describing. I, the only thing that I would push back on or at least question or just ask you is how is it that do you believe that it's actually the scientists that are, are also being contaged, so to speak? Like, it's hard for me to imagine that someone like Fauci 
is actually being scared by these dynamics you're describing. Like, aren't, aren't the scientists supposed to stand again, uh, above the fray, above the, the panic and, and evaluate these things and present the information in a somewhat rational fashion? Yeah, I mean, they look, I mean, I'm a scientist and I'm lucky in my life to have, you know, a dozen and a half research directions and discoveries that are sort of mine. And I would say to first order, those 18 things are the only things that I've ever treated it like a scientist. The rest of my life, as even as a scientist, I'm acting like the way that normal humans do. And that's including all the other things that I believe scientifically. I believe them not because I went through the actual evidence myself and was a Bayes, you know, did Bayes theorem and slowly, you know, accumulated. No, I, I, I have people that I respect uh, within the field. I, they are high reputation sources as far as my reputation network is concerned. And I believe them. And it's the same reasons that so Fauci, a lot of all these people, they believe their other. And when you're part of, you know, scientists are part of an echo chamber. They're already disproportionately 97% left. And that's amongst, you know, in anthropology, it's, you know, 98 or nine, it's even worse, right? As you, in some of these fields, it's, it's disproportionately far left. You'll find a few libertarians who already feel like they're the, the most right, you know, right-leaning people in the universe when you're amongst them. And anybody on the right, you can't even measure the number of people that are, that would be self-described on the right. Wow. And when you're in that kind of environment, I'm not saying it's even a left thing per se, but once in the United States, once COVID happened in the beginning, you know, there's all these people on the right that suddenly became authoritarians, all these libertarians that I used to follow on Twitter, they all became libertarian, uh, authoritarians about it, COVID authoritarians. And just, but over time, for some, because of the local politics on the ground and Trump was, you know, up for re-election, slowly the left overall shifted towards the authoritarian position and more on the right shifted up. But lots of people on the right are still you know, authoritarian to this day. But in other countries, you find that the right went total authoritarian. In some cases, you found, like in Sweden, the left was the, the, the ones who are freedom-oriented. So I don't think this is, I think a lot of this is provincial politics in each case. But because it's one community, a polarized community to begin with, with one narrative that they're following, and talking about back to academics and scientists, they're much more likely when you're part of a single narrative to move together as one group rather than being able to break up and make up their own minds independently because they're all part of this narrative where they've accumulated this high reputation and they respect these folks and the other, other folks, if they, if they choose to break out, they're gonna lose all the reputation that they've uh, gained over all these years. And I'm not saying that they're even consciously saying, oh, if I don't, you know, if I move to this position in this, I'm imagining this two-dimensional space that I have, you know, I have one of these science moment videos or talk about it. So you can think about left and right, but also libertarian versus authoritarian, this, this old sort of uh, Nolan diagram. They're not thinking to themselves, no, I will lose reputation, so I will hereby not move. That's not, the, we can describe it kind of from above that way, but that's not really usually what's going on. We believe what we believe because of the kinds of reputation networks that we're within, and we rise in reputation in them. And, and so you can explain that you wouldn't want to leave because you lose reputation, but that's not what's going on in their mind. What's going on in their mind is they really believe what they believe because they, because the high reputation folks have sold them so, and they've accumulated a reputation by virtue of that because they've convinced others in their community who also. So what you come to believe is really exactly what happens by virtue of your position within that network. And so often, you know, a lot of what I do at FreeX and what I've been doing on Twitter is not just trying to explain what's going on and trying to deprogram sort of, you know, the COVID authoritarians, but I'm also trying to sort of deprogram a lot of the folks on my side who are prone to conspiracy theories, prone to not, this is the same thing we, as a scientist in the biological sciences and in evolution, natural selection is not easy to understand. Natural selection is the anti-conspiracy theory, right? Hmm. It explained the most complicated things in all of the universe that we know of, biological design, 
without a designer, right? So that's mind blowing. It's very hard. And a lot of biologists forget how mind blowing that is and how difficult it is for the regular person to understand who hasn't done this for a long time. These sorts of emergent phenomena, these sorts of design by virtue of selection processes, which can happen in biology as well as in culture are difficult to grasp. So a lot of what we also just trying to say, the opposition might be evil in some sense, like the whole thing is doing something evil, but often the individuals, you could sometimes have every individual be perfectly nice, sweet people like your grandma or your mom or your dad, you know, whatever, just nice folks, but together they're doing evil, but everybody's mm -hmm. actually nice. And so you have to kind of keep, this is very complicated so that you don't hate the enemy. You can try, this is a much more tolerant way to approach politics and approach sure. your opposition. Yeah, and, and understanding them would definitely benefit us. Uh, I think that's why a lot of people, including myself, have gone down the conspiracy route because we're we're trying to understand and we're left with an answer that doesn't make sense, you know, because like I'm not a scientist, but I I have basically done the same thing that you're describing, where like I look for high reputation people that are actually doing the research about, you know, statistics of COVID outbreaks and and, uh, you know, fatality rates and things like that. And those people that have been accurate from the beginning are the people I listen to. So I'm doing the same thing. Um, but when it comes to like the source data and the, the, the hot, you know, the people that came into this moment in history with the highest level of social clout, the, the scientists that we listen to, Fauci is the, the figurehead, but there's, there's a handful that obviously are that many, many, they're very influential. Many people listen to them explicitly and they're like, I, whatever they say, we will do. And I'm, I'm mystified that I under, I understand what you're saying that like, obviously they are influenced by their own network and their network is very small. So it's like, if you just have a few people with the wrong ideas, it can become a contagion like this, but I'm still, I'm still lost as to how they got it so wrong. I mean, well, I wouldn't say that it's small. I mean, as you know, in the beginning, you you felt alone, probably in March. If you, but now I don't feel nearly as alone because we found each other. But I think we get a false sense of community on Twitter where we're all connected to each other. You sure. forget, and we only remember when we got dive into people's comments, you know, and other blue checks in the in the real COVID authoritarian world. We're like, holy crap! There's a billion comments here where they're all still freaked about. You know, they're they're all double mapped. So that I think we should. These are not small communities that they're connected to. Most of the scientists, most of the academics, most all, nearly all of the journalists, you know, except for Alex, nearly everybody still um, uh, doesn't realize that this the pandemic has been radically um, uh, exaggerated in its in its threat and the interventions radically um, exaggerated in their their effectiveness. And you know, that's so, incredible. I mean, I we're a year into this thing, man. How is that even possible? Right. And I mean, I, I believe that were I to have you know, you might say, well, you might say to yourself, oh, I didn't manage to get, you know, turned hysterical. I, I didn't fall for the mass delusion. It's because I'm smarter or it's because I have a greater IQ or it's because I'm more academic. No, I don't believe any of those things. I've got plenty of friends that are, are smarter than me. They're academic. They're all whatever you want to say. It might even work against you. These people are full, full on and they were full on as of March 10th. They were full on zombies who completely thought this was the scariest thing that's ever happened. And any kind of principles they had against, you know, any kind of civil rights notions that they had had before were completely thrown out the window. Right. So to me, uh, the, the best sex, you know, there could be personality types, but I think ultimately the best explanation is where you sat in the network when it happened. You know, I, I, I come as a history of a theorist who's always tried to remain aloof. And I used to teach my students, 
principles, a bunch of principles to try to main, maintain, be a good theorist and be creative. And one of them is being aloof. And that's just never going to conferences within the scientific world. Don't go to conferences. Don't get involved in the communities there. Because once you get involved in the communities, you want to be like, you know, Doug and Judy, who are the ones 20 years older than you, who are really famous, right? You want to be like them. And once you become like in your mid-30s, you've got a little bit of gray maybe, and you've done something. Then the younger people, the guys are like, yeah, look, at that's Mark. You know, he's like, he did this great paper 10 years ago. And the women are like batting their eye. You love it, right? This is what humans love. And once you're in that community, you like the social parts. You like, in the entire world of creativity, just gets just like the New York maps. You've seen the New York maps where the entire world is covered with New York City yeah. and the rest of the world is on the outskirts. The community of that field, that intellectual field, will spread and fill up the entire space of all ideas. And you will think that all the ideas outside of that are bullcrap and not interesting, not worth, worthy of working on. So all of these things are a trap. So I said, no, you got to remain aloof. Don't do that because you'll be, you know, you just never have the ability to move to some new field and come up with creative ideas that buck the trends and tell all, and, you know, stick a middle finger up all, at Doug and Judy, which is what you need to be able to do. Right. So I wasn't really doing this to be aloof for political, you know, societal kinds of reasons. It was for my own personal reasons, but I somewhat attribute, I've always tried to remain aloof politically as well. I never, you know, tweeted after 10 years about politics other than free expression sorts of things. So I think I ended up aloof. Uh, and so that is potentially what saved me. Other things that could have saved folks would have been that I often wonder, and I don't have any data on this, could religious folks, They've already got their own mass illusion, right? And I, I'm not saying it's even a bad or good thing. I think there's some arguments that, you know, I'm more open-minded to religions potentially having selected over time to do things that are helpful to human minds. And they're engineered to harness us in ways that we don't fully understand. And we shouldn't just say they're false and therefore they're stupid. It's not about the truth value of the propositions. It's about what they do in much more complex ways. Right. Um, but since they've got their own thing and it's really deeply entrained in their brain, maybe they were more immune to these sorts of things. Whereas, you know, a, uh, uh, the folks in academia are free floating. They don't, they're not attached. So they're much more likely to, to take upon this, this, you know, a new, a new kind of radical idea. But again, that that's more speculative. I think being aloof and where you sat within the, the networks, the main drivers. I yeah. Well, that I, I have to admit that certainly uh, is an apt descriptor for me as, as a, you know, financially free entrepreneur in my thirties who already has skepticism about authority, who already has skepticism about government. And, and ultimately, I just wanted to know the truth. I was just, I, all I did was I set out to see how dangerous this was. Like I've described it many times. People think that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to brag about how early on I figured out this was bullshit. But the truth is for the first month, actually prior to the lockdowns, I was very concerned because I was taking in the input from, you know, sources that were uh, reporting on Italy and, and China and Iran and it was very concerning. I, you know, in the first two weeks of lockdown, while everyone was panicking, I had already gone out and bought, you know, food and precious metals and <laughs> guns. And, you know, I was like, I was, I was front running the panic, but then I also got through the panic much faster, you know? So like basically a month into it, after I started to see the actual fatality rates and things of that nature, and then I started to see the plans that they were rolling out, I got extremely skeptical. And then um, you know, the mask mandates and, and things that seem to be medically inefficacious, like it, it just didn't seem to be, it didn't, it didn't seem to work, you know, what they were actually prescribing us, even, even assuming that you believe that the virus was dangerous, it didn't seem that they were prescribing us methodology that worked. And yeah. it still doesn't seem that way to me. So I, I guess my only question for you would be, how is it that there aren't more 
renegade reporters, people that want to make their names, people that aren't within the, you know, esteemed halls of academia already that are trying to supplant some of those elders that didn't, that didn't break the mold that didn't come. I mean, has our system got so sick that they don't, that there is no longer a mechanism to benefit those people meaningfully. I'm, I'm curious as to why you think, has it always been this way or is this a new phenomenon? Uh, well, I, 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 so the question, I mean, I know I, I asked you a bunch of questions. Sorry. Well, prior to COVID, of course, we, we, you know, the mainstream media in the United States is of course, disproportionately telling one story, uh, you know, it, it was already part of a single narrative, uh, you know, most of them. So it's not like we're uh, not surprised that they all ended up on one narrative here. The, the number of people that are mainstream media that are really having that kind of objective independent viewpoint is that practically nil even in, in February, right, of, of 2020. So to me, it doesn't really require any special COVID explanation to explain why a month later, they were all equally on the same page and equally um, uh, uh, neck deep in, in hysteria. Um, nothing really special needs to be, to, to be, to be explained in that case. Um, they started off that way. And, uh, well, I, I understand why they would be scared up front. I mean, uh, particularly given the uncertainty the the novel nature of the virus and things like that like that all makes sense to me i i don't understand the inability to reflect months in you know to to see by june by july by august that this is not as dangerous as we've been advertised that many of the um i don't know guidelines that we were offered or or forced upon us were not working so why why is it that even after the fact, these people were un, unable or unwilling to reflect on, uh, is it just like, you can't, you can't possibly admit error? Is that, is yeah, it as simple that, as that? That's what I think it, it's not, right? So, I mean, that's what, that's what, it's very easy to see that from the outside. You believe that they see the data that you see, right? From the outside, of course, I, even before it became a full-on hysteria, I was already beginning, because I didn't know, I started looking, I'm, I'm skeptical of everything I see on journals, which is already an initial part of being aloof and made me immune to it. So this sounds like, well, it's always, I presume everything I hear from them is bullshit. So at first, this doesn't sound right. Let's look into it. Oh, it's actually this, right? But I, that's not what happens for the journalists who, they are in an echo chamber of other journalists and other left-leaning scientists in the United States. And they, they became, you know, 100%, their prior probabilities came prior, you know, the meaning that in the absence of any information in, in the very beginning, even before the information came in, their their, their prior probabilities were telling them that COVID is different than every other virus that they've ever seen before. It's different on all, you know, all of the different aspects of the dimensionalities you can make. It's spread more easily. It can, it can harm kids. It can, um, it doesn't have a seasonality. Uh, every single thing about it that's normal for a virus. Now, if you wanted to show this for a respiratory seasonal virus, you have to provide disproportionate evidence to now show that it's this, what you would expect in the, in the baseline, because they believed with 110%, it was some kind of massively novel thing. So with no evidence at all, or with a tiny little plop of evidence, it confirms their belief that this is completely unlike anything that they've ever seen before. And it requires tremendous, overwhelming, overwhelming evidence for years, maybe, to get them to the point where that prior probability to that this is like the most dangerous, unusual thing ever, um, to, to overturn that. Because once your priors, and so one of the things I've worked on, but sort of prior probabilities, how do we get the prior probabilities that we, this is called a riddle of induction. How do animals, uh, if you have evidence, the same evidence as me, what 
enforces it, what forces it to be the case that you and I should have the same beliefs about the beliefs about the world. And it turns out it's a really deep problem because you can turn out on the base of the same evidence, we can come up with very different beliefs about the world, both consistent with, with the data. Um, it's basically the issue of like, why draw a straight line through a bunch of you know noisy data rather than drawing parabola or any other thing. Like that's a relatively easy, easy case, but it's a really deep kind of problem. Depends on your prior probabilities. If you start with wacky, fucked up probabilities, you're going to end up with wacky, fucked up hypotheses and potentially forever, or at least for in the law, it could be many, many years or a long period of time before the two different folks uh, converge. So it's as if these folks ended up with because of the hysteria at the beginning due to contagious fear and to fear of a pandemic, which is infectiousness is something that really is hu uh, humans and all social animals are probably disproportionately afraid of because cooties, these are the kind of cooties. So, um, and even, um, you know, even called other cultural revolutions use these as metaphors when there's not infectiousness, they treat Jews as if they're infectious. They treat sure. people who are not Muslims as if they're infectious. They treat the, the rich and, you know, the, the bourgeoisie as if they're infectious. There are all of these things get utilized because humans are naturally afraid and shun infectious things. And once you had fear and contagious fear of an infection, it just com somehow completely changed uh, the prior probabilities of, of what of all the hypotheses concerned. And that makes sense since there's a biological imperative to av avoid, you know, infection. Uh, so that I, I understand the, the human drive to to go towards that. But I also it seems to me that there should be a countervailing human drive for freedom and liberty. And over this past year, it seems as if that drive has been completely supplanted by the drive for security and safety. Is that, I, I know this may not be in your wheelhouse, but it seems to me that we have had a cultural shift of late that people value security and safety over freedom do you do you believe that I'm overstating it, or is this not at all a new phenomenon? What, what's your opinion on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I I would say that that's I would agree, and and, and I think there is something new. I think it's certainly been you know to talk about this Nolan diagram they talked about before. This is one of these things where let's see, from you know, if this is uh, if this is uh, personal liberties and this is economic liberties, then you end up with. Actually, it could be that what I see in my screen is going to be left, right, flop. So I, might, I may get it wrong, but anyway, it's okay. It's okay. I think it should be maybe this is left and this is right. But so, but people on the left in the United States have flipped to authoritarian down at the bottom disproportionately. I think we got Naomi Wolf and you know famous leftists who are on my side up top. But much of the argument that's going on for the last year is no longer concerning left, right at all. All of the COVID-related stuff is really one of authoritarianism versus freedom, and we've got folks. Uh, that we're on the right, that are down here, that we're on the left, we're up here, and all these different kinds of differences. But it's primarily a vertical one, um, and it was moving towards that in many ways. A lot of these woke things, a lot of things prior to this, had had aspects of that, but are really clamped down much harder. And the reasons, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do with the kinds of principles that we talk about at FreeX and coming out is explain what is going on at these sort of emergent psychosocial levels. Uh, it doesn't justify or excuse anybody. It's just trying to explain it. It's right. more like, you know, why are men more likely to rape than women? And then people used to argue, you can't eat. No, you, you shouldn't even come up with hypotheses for why males are more likely to rape because now you're justifying it. No, this is not justification. It's just trying to explain why, why is there much higher incidences of these things? Evolution. Sure. Um, same sorts of things are going on here. So certainly the folks that are going down here, in fact, I, I you know, would be on polls, I'm sure more likely to value safety and it, it, it would, I'm sure, be a massive difference. Um, they may not, I'm sure that they don't even view themselves as authoritarian. They probably don't 
although they're constantly complaining about the folks up here saying ma freedom and things like this, right? They're, right. you know, you and your freedom, you know, things like this. So I, in, implicitly they're admitting that they're authoritarian when they do that, of course. Yeah, and, and, and in truth, they, they view themselves as the altruists, you know, they, I, whether or not, I think it's, it's largely driven by their own self-interest and their own selfishness and their own desire for survival, which is fine. That's a human instinct. But I think that the presentation of that emotion is complete bullshit. I think that when they when they say that they're, you know, oh, think of the grandmas and stuff. I'm like, let's be honest. You're thinking about yourself. I mean, you're you're really concerned about this virus and you're really concerned for yourself. Now, not all not everyone and not always. I'm not trying to paint them all with a broad brush. Certainly many people are are willing to sacrifice to try and prevent the elderly from dying from this thing. Um, but it does seem as if those that have shifted to authoritarianism are doing it largely out of their own, you know self-preservation and, and, and in my view, a very misguided one, because I think that ultimately we are, we will probably end up losing more people. And I know this is kind of an extreme statement, but I, I honestly believe that the lockdowns have created a, a social contagion and an environment that we will end up with tremendous violence. Um, how pessimistic or optimistic are you on that? Well, yeah, I, I, it was one of the, you know, I had these 15 reasons lockdowns were never common sense last April. And, you know, number 15 was that, you know, in, in terms of uh, uh, Nassim Taleb's black swans, which you constantly, it's like, black, you know, if you can even imagine a qualitatively rare case that still has sort of positive probability, not, you know, it's not exponentially, some kind of really rare case in the case of the pandemic, it's, it's a very small possibility, but it's not completely negligible that the pandemic could be super bad. Even though, so you have to treat it as if you have to just act as if it's the case. And of course, what he's forgetting is that actually these are called black swans, sort of not particularly rare, rare events in some sense that are really, really bad. Well, the, but the rare events that in fact uh, are not actually so rare that in fact uh, uh, kill the most people are the uh, human induced kinds of violence, uh, famines, wars, riots, revolutions. This is what in fact uh, damages humans and society the most. And this is exactly the kind of thing that's unfortunately, most likely to roll back mass delusions in the madness of crowds and in McKay's, you know, 150 or whatever year old madness of crowds book. Uh, there's a great book, really old. He describes in his introduction how, you know, these things typically just, they just keep going. They, they never, they never stop except through rivers of blood. And, you know, and, and this, they're very hard to, so I don't know if that's true. I mean, and he doesn't know if that's true. It, he was doing lots of look at various different examples back in his era. Why that you know? I'd like to be able to study. Is this in fact the case? Um, can, are there ways of rolling it back? If you can understand the physics, the psycho, societal physics of these sorts of things, and there's a lot of ways in them which they're they're actually like blockchains. These sorts of these social narratives are a lot like blockchains, and certain, they're difficult to uh, uh, roll back. But even if they're difficult to roll back, what conditions could they be rolled back? What conditions could they be such that you veer it towards something that's more normal? Are they veerable? Are they steerable? All of these sorts of questions are the kind of things that you can ask and potentially answer, or at least have sort of uh, good ideas within these kinds of qualitative frameworks. So it's unclear. Um, I, going back to the folks who are on the authoritarian side, the pro, you know, COVID doom side, you, I did want to mention, I don't believe that, I don't agree with you that they are any different than us in terms of, let's, uh, of being selfish or, you know, they often treat us as selfish. I don't think they're, they're selfish. I think they're just as trying to save society as are you and I. And 
from again in their book i mean these people i was you know i was just at a coffee shop the only coffee shop of eight that's left just like kind of the crappy one that's at the strip mall not the, like the sexy one but i'm you know i'm going there all the time because they're the only one left this guy's sitting outside with an n95 mask for two hours on his computer sitting on the outside you know table and i'm thinking why is he doing this and he's you know part of it's of course virtual signaling he's signaling what a good person he is that, he, that he's doing this but he really thinks he's a good person he's not when you say that people are virtue signaling because they're doing kind of a crazy thing and virtue signals work because they're crazy. They work because no one would do it in the right mind. If anybody would be doing it, like just like, like the, the waving flies off your face, then that doesn't work as a virtue signal because anybody's going to do that. You got to go but out of your way. Doing it just because he's trying to be a douchebag and pretentious. No, they're doing it because yes, it's a sig- virtue signal, but also they believe that there's righteousness to it and it shows their sure. righteousness. Trying to get others to be just as righteous because they believe it saves people, right? And this is, I think, important to understand. It's, and of course, the same thing is happening. The people who don't understand these sorts of effects are accusing us of being selfish, you know, grandma killers. And of course that's false as well, but I think it's, that's the problem with these sorts of politics. And even right. before, everybody just bomb throwing, you guys are evil, no, you guys are evil, right? The same thing. It's not that, and trying to understand these events in a, in a way that also leads to more tolerance because it's not true that both either side is being the evil that you think that they are. Yeah. And so that's, that's part of these people really believe that they're, that they are morally good and morally right. And that society will be better off. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I, let me, let me rephrase then because I wasn't trying to imply that I, I was basically just trying to, to say that they're presenting it as a truly altruistic act exclusively and, and diminishing their own desire to survive. And I, I just think that they're understating it, not not that they're evil or, or that they're significantly well, yeah, they're different from us. Understating it. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're just, but they're not consciously understating it. <laughs> okay, sure, yeah. that's but fair. I, they don't know. Yeah. Well, well, then, how how is it that? I mean, even if your if your network and you're getting all of this this feedback loop of people telling you that this is still very dangerous and that all of these all of these protocols that we've had have been beneficial and righteous and the right thing to do. How is it that they can, I mean, are they completely ignoring the examples of Florida and Texas that have reopened? I mean, it seems to me like it's almost impossible. Like at some point, the reality of this situation has to become so obvious and stark that you can't avoid it anymore. Am I I delusional? (laughs) I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, I, the hope would be that eventually it becomes so overwhelming that it, even these sort of the prior probability Bayesian way of thinking about it, even that eventually they, they, they can't help. But, but, but I, I mean, as you know, I mean, just getting back to pre-COVID times, folks who believe in religion, I think there's positive, I'm not saying it's positive, but there's a lot of design and structure religion. I don't want to crash religion just because it's not propositionally true. But nevertheless, the people who do believe and are, are part of a religion do believe those propositions is probably crucial to actually get the benefits of religion if there are any. And they believe those propositions, despite, you know, all, all in, you know, there's no evidence that supports them and all evidence goes against that. And you have, you know, religions continuing for generations, right? For, for a thousand years. So um, these things uh, really can continue to move forward um, without any evidence at all. Uh, I mean, you have 40 years in Iran with women with headscarves and there's no, the only arguments there are just bullcrap that, well, men are more likely to think dirty thoughts and then society starts to go downhill because, you know, some bullcrap like this. In this case, in the United States, all of the mask pro mask studies are, they're bullshit, right? They're other, but they're done by actual scientists 
science gets its name behind it rather than some mall, right? Science is behind it and they're showing fancy, you know, computer simulations of some kind of, you know, uh, big doll or, you know, a mannequin with the, Right. So these things look sciencey. They have the feel of science. This, the narratives come across as much better than what you'll find in any of the narratives that, that have plagued, uh, you know, irrational narratives that occur in other cultures that still nevertheless last. So I have no confidence that that um, these are going to wisp away quickly uh, with evidence. Now, I, I, but I don't really know. I mean, again, a lot of these are intuitions based on just my own background and history of being a person, which is and then a lot of some of it is coming from the kind of intuitions that come from the framework. Um, but really, these frameworks really need to be um, uh, worked out so that we can fully understand these sorts of effects. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's what anybody who's a, a non-doomer has been trying to evaluate and figure out is like, do, does the rest of the world ever come to our perspective? You know, and 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 what can we do to help them on that path? It's like. Uh, for the, I know you and I both for the longest time, I don't know when I stopped doing it, but basically I gave up on factual arguments against lockdowns and I started to make emotional pleas and, and I've found it to be far more effective. And I've certainly found far more support from people going that route. It's like, it's like if you, and, and the Libertarian Party of Kentucky got in a lot of trouble for this, but they made a, a comparison to the vaccine passports in, in, in contrast to the, uh, the stars on Jews in you know, 1930s, 40s uh, yeah. Germany. And people were very upset about it. But I, I think I really do believe that even if it's an over-the-top comparison, at some point we have to start to point out to people that we are on a slope and it is slippery. And, and this, this stuff doesn't end well. And if you if you allow fear to be the guiding principle of your society, you will turn to the government, and the government oftentimes will offer you solutions that look a lot like death camps. And and I, I know it sounds hyperbolic, but I really fear that like we are we are offering so much of our liberty in this moment for a, a virus that is relatively benign. I mean, it has by all accounts, it's less than one percent fatality rate. So I just can, can, all right. So what, what is your thought? I mean, can, can we actually stop this? I know you're, that's what you're, that's what you're studying and that's what you're going to work towards. Um, do you think that it's, that it's a winnable fight uh, argumentatively, or is this uh, going to end up being violent? Yeah. Well, I mean, back to something that you said, I, I, I go back and forth as to whether I think it's worthwhile to go through the facts on the epidemiology and the data science and the interventions, you know, the effectiveness. And all. Uh, part of me, it wasn't more than one uh, way to go in terms of thread here. One part of this is that I don't care how good your interventions are, and they're and in fact they're not. None of these things even narrowly work. <laughs> I don't care how how bad uh, COVID supposedly is, and it's not bad. It's actually very flu-like, right? It's better, safer than flu if you're young and, and and like a bad flu girl. I, none of that matters. You don't have the right. The government doesn't have the right. The state doesn't have the right to uh, violate civil rights and mass and wreck the economy. And you know, decide what's essential businesses and do all. It's just it's if you're going to be bright and clever as an academic, as an epidemiologist, or as a public health professional, you have to come up with clever incentives-based uh, uh, civil rights-preserving uh, intervention ideas. That's the whole game. The whole point of going to college and coming up with clever ideas is that you say, okay, if we just do this, we make some, we do these incentives. Suddenly, people are going to start behaving in the right way. 
without freaking everybody out, without all the downsides of that, that's what makes a clever idea, a clever person clever, not just say, well, okay, let's just confine everybody to their homes and make them wear, you know, a, a, a paper over their faces, but, you know, it's just ridiculously dumb, doesn't even work in the first place. And you don't have the right to do this. This is not Sim City, right? You can't do that. And so it sets aside all of this empirical stuff where you can argue you're, you know, you defused one empirical thing about one, and then there's another one. It just keeps popping up forever in, the, in a round in the circle. Say, none of that really matters. You're not allowed to do this. Shut the F up and leave us alone. That's the real point. You don't have the right to do this. Um, Preach. So that's, <laughs> you know, so that's one part of it that, you know, I've been trying to do more about, you know, the fundamental civil rights from, from the beginning is that how, where, how has it been that, that where have the libertarians, where have the civil rights uh, uh, folks gone? The other thing that I was going to go is, is that, yeah, emotion got us into this. And just, you know, like emotion will get us out of this. But much more importantly, and this is one of the three pillars of, of, of FreeX and comes out of this next book, you know, The Origins of Emotional Expression, sort of arguing from first principles what emotional expressions are for. Free, ex free speech isn't really about speech. Speech is important. But if I sit here and I talk with a like Spock, like data from Star Trek, and I just say the things that I say, and I don't give certain things that I say higher confidence and other things that I say lower confidence, and I'm not able to distinguish any of those things. Well, then which things that I'm saying should you believe, right? right. As an order, you know which things I'm confident about by virtue of me expressing anger or being smug about it, or things that I'm less sure I'm looking a little bit more humble about it. These are what allow you to know, just like in a, in a, in a science paper, oh, it's P less than 0.001 here, but here it's not significant, or, or, or they think it might be significant, whatever. They're modulating, careful, titrating um, their, their claims about how confident they are. That's what allows you to know whether what to believe in, in science. If speech is not as important, or of course in speech itself, in a text, you can put emotional expressions into it. The point is it's not just the propositions per se, it's the emotional content. And the emotional content is, is, is really giving it these confidences, either claims about how confident I am or my claims about how confident or not confident you are. You know, mm -hmm. I have disdain for what you're saying. Oh, that's bullcrap, right? And when you do these sorts of things, you're doing it via emotional expressions, which is really like statistics for dummies or mm -hmm. statistics for truly intelligent, brilliant creatures who have evolved, not be able to utter statistics and, statistics and do statistics because we can't do that kind of thing. But we use all of our brains on the base of all the evidence to come up with an emotional expression, which is sort of a great estimate of the confidence we have on the base of the data that we have using our entire brains and not doing it consciously, right? Free speech is about these free expressions. If someone tells you to watch your tone, they're cutting into your free, your free expression. That's how you, that, and this is what's missing in social media. Social media is trying. They've got I, your, your ability to like somebody, like you're saying, I'm happy with what you said, or I'm not happy. And then there's like the happy and the smile, like all these little, bull, like six things you can do on Facebook, whatever. But that's not what you need. You really need the full range of emotional expressions that we have and the ability to do that and the ability to kind of argue about it, like it's a negotiation. And eventually we, we come to an agreement. And then fun thing about emotional expressions, and let me just go down that road just for a second. Please. When you emotionally express confidence. If I say, do you have any idea, Clint, even who I am? Do you know who I am, right? I've said that I'm really confident. I says that I'm, I'm more right. I've raised the seriousness of the subject, but I've also bet. I bet social capital. Because now if it turns out that I'm wrong, I, I've pushed in chips. If it turns out that I, either I have to, like you come back with an argument, I go, oh, oh, never mind, you were right, right? Then I've lost some of those chips because people saw that you rose and I fell, and, or, or or later you call you say screw you, and then it turns out that it turns out that I was wrong. Like we 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 figure out who was right on the basis of what actually happened, or whatever we were arguing about. These confidences that we say or humility, that the opposite, are, amount to sort of a generalization of poker. The, it's these things that underlie 
why I'm going to be honest at all, because I can potentially lose reputation or gain reputation. And when your social networks are functioning properly, these emotional expressions are, are the individual transactions undergird the individual traction transactions, decentralized transactions of, you know, a bit reputation, like these like Bitcoin, but it's your reputations and yeah. people are rising and falling in a decentralized manner. You get fact checkers like Twitter and Facebook coming in here and trying to now control it. Yeah, these decentralized things mess up like they did back in March. The last thing you want is Facebook or Twitter or any centralized group deciding, kicking people off, censoring their speech and messing with the decentralized mechanisms. The decentralized mechanisms, which is even how science works. Science doesn't work by virtue of, of Bayesian statistics or statistics. Each individual papers might, but the entire community of scientists is just the same stuff, the same shit as a community of humans. It works in the exact same way. It's reputation hierarchies and the networks that slowly stumbles towards the truth. That's that's why it works. Right. Those networks. It's the same reason that, and we need to preserve those sorts of uh, decentralized, distributed reputation networks. Yeah, and the the willingness to censor and edit and suppress dissident viewpoints, especially during a moment of panic, is yeah. completely contrary to what we need. I mean, right. uh, that's that's exactly why I was so disturbed and concerned when you know they they're now suppressing and banning people for saying anything you know negative about the vaccines or the um they they did that with the hunter biden story they did that with the uh you know there was early on like during the summer there was uh they would put all these warnings uh, you know oh you got to go go to covid.org or whatever to to find the truth about covid as if as if there was a truth at that point i mean the, the the truth is that there was not a truth it was a it was a developing evaluation or, or, or a conclusion or a, you know, a group idea. And uh, to your other points, I, I realized as you were telling uh, that really beautiful explanation, why I'm so good at poker, <laughs> 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 because, because I've been playing poker for the past year, I have been putting my chips on the table, um, you know, in social risk, you know, I, I've been, I've been basically supplanting really big people in the libertarian party by my my willingness to put my reputation and my ideas up against theirs and and yesterday i did that in the most brazen psychotic way imaginable nick sarwak who was the chair of the libertarian party and who was responsible for the messaging and who completely failed us during the moment of lockdowns who didn't have any messaging that was uh, in opposition to it whatsoever i told him yesterday hey let's a very unfriendly wager if I have more followers than you in the next seven days, and he's got more than 2,000 more than me right now, if I have more followers than you in the next seven days, you delete your account, and if I don't, I'll delete mine. And he didn't respond because he knows damn well that if, I, if he says yes, there is enough people that hate his guts and like me that my thing will be retweeted to oblivion, and he, he will, they will all unfollow him because half of his followers are hate follows anyways. So it's a stupid, petty, ridiculous, childish example but it's really true and i just i just I, I i understood it in a way that i hadn't until you explained that so i appreciate that that was really well said <laughs> yeah. yeah it's um i mean i i suppose this is the first time in addition to writing about these things and trying to flesh out as a theorist these sorts of poker games and these reputation networks it was the first time in my life when COVID happened that i became, you know, that I came out of the closet, so to speak, in terms of being a motherfucker, right? Before I was, you know, I, I became Genghis Khan, Changizi actually in Farsi, yeah, yeah, yeah. basically Genghis Khan is the word for Genghis Khan. 
and you know, for 10 years I've been on Twitter, I was just, you know, just stop talking about science or, and I've got, you know, six, this is my sixth book. So you're promoting your, your publisher, promote your book, promote your science, do, you know, just do stuff like this. And, and I never, you know, I, there was people that I followed libertarians. I like, they're, I, I, they're interesting. And I, I look up, not look up to them, but I, I'm glad that they're there. Right. And folks like, let's say Scott Adams, who often has really bright things to say, you know, he's blocked me because, you know, I've, I've gone up head to head with them. Nassim Taleb has blocked everybody, of course, but he's blocked. <laughs> so, but I just like, I just, everybody that I thought was a useful person that was fighting potentially for free expression and, and, and free speech, um, completely uh, became authoritarian and failed us when really the one time in our generation that something disproportionately dangerous was happening incredibly quickly and you needed to, to notice it and say the right things and push back. No one, no one that I was following was there. And so I said, well, you know, everybody just, so I just said, I've got to, I've got to stand up, you know, I can't just, you know, all the people that I follow typically on, on Twitter were just science journalists and I was part of the world. Not, I'm not leftist. I'm not right. I'm just libertarian, but they consider me far right. If you're libertarian, of course, so I, I wouldn't, other than free speech stuff, I haven't, I never spoke up, but suddenly I said, well, yeah, all these science journalists are not going to like me anymore because they realize I'm libertarian. And I know that they've all shifted to authoritarian, but hell, I can't just sit. So I said, if the libertarians aren't going to do it, then get the hell out of my way because I've got uh, somebody's got to do this. So I'm, yeah, that's, that's been uh, Dave Smith and my own rallying cry for the past couple of months is lead follower, get the fuck out of the way. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. It's, it's that in my view, it's that dire. I, I don't know what your perspective is, but I'll, I'll ask. I mean, we've already talked about this quite a few times, so I, I'm not trying to like force you to give me a definitive answer because obviously we don't know how this plays out, but are you doing any sort of preparations to, to flee? I mean, I, I am genuinely at the point of like such deep seated concern that this yeah. could go full totalitarian. And obviously if you get out just before it goes totalitarian, it's a hell of a lot easier than getting out after it goes totalitarian. Um, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, Iran, Iran is looking much better. <laughs> I mean, right. Iran, is just as Karen actually as, 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 you know, can in a lot of places. But then again, I mean, it was already pretty crapped up. So the difference between it before now is, uh, and then, was, but there's, it's unclear. My wife and I have thought about some South, uh, some Central American countries, but each time we look at them, it turns out they're, they're deeply under the influence as well. Think about Sweden, but it's too cold for my wife. And, you know, there's a bunch of, a bunch of ideas. And we thought thinking about going to Florida, uh, but again, I think, you know, it could be a change of administration and who knows what would happen there? I mean, when I, Florida, people keep talking about Florida, but I live in Ohio. Ohio actually was, you know, back to 30% normal, even back in May of last year, whereas even supposedly great Florida, at least in Miami, was messed up until like September. You know, everybody, everybody on the streets was mandated on the streets. Nothing was really open. The entire Lincoln uh, Road sort of breeze, like the fun place down in South Beach was just, everything is decimated. So, uh, it did switch over pretty quickly, but a lot of the, it's really hard to trust whether these these things uh, will stay that way. Now there's been a precedent, but we'll see. I'm hoping that. I mean, there seems to be a lot of change happening quickly, but then again, a lot of the change may be attributed to good intervention strategy. We masked up. We did a good job. We were sufficiently authoritarian, just like New Zealand. New Zealand really believes um, to all of their heart that they defeated it by virtue of their authoritarianism. They sufficiently out China, even China, and so that's and they're they're patting themselves on the back. They're only they're they're only up for more of it, even though um, the entire Southeast Asia region had uh, you know disproportionately low uh, pandemic severity everywhere, independent of their intervention stringency. 
um, they still, and, and worldwide, you know, there's no correlation between these things. Right. But like the rain dance, they did a rain dance and it worked <laughs> and they believe it and there's no talking them out of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's exactly why I try to point to instances of the mandates and the lockdowns all lifting and you don't have all of the dire predictions come true. And we've seen that repeatedly. And it's like, uh, granted, they're not interested in information. They're not interested in like actually seeing whether or not they were right. Um, but at the same time, I feel like that's the only way we kill this entire concept. And, but the, I, I think that the bigger point, and, and it's what you made already, is that regardless of efficacy, regardless of the danger of the virus, I want this concept killed. I want the idea of lockdowns to be completely anathema in America. And, yeah. and my entire life, it was. And I feel like a crazy person that, you know, now at 38 years old, with only one year of lockdowns ever being even a fucking concept that anyone would consider. And now I'm the radical. Now I'm the weirdo that like, yeah. I have to point this out to people. I'm like, I don't, I shouldn't have to point this out. This is what my entire life's been. Why is it that, why is it that people have accepted this so deeply? What? I don't know. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just crying on your shoulder. You tell me. <laughs> I don't have to wear a mask. Like my wife has to wear a mask, you know, eight hours a day. She'd have to basically become like a pioneer and fight her big company that she works for to go to be able to, to keep her job and not have to wear a mask. If there, I presume, I'm guessing, you know, it could go either way. They're probably going to start demanding vaccinations. So she's going to have to be, you know, being some kind of hero complex to be able to fight this just to keep her job. Um, we may all have to be doing a hero complex just to go to any store. Always have to have, just starting to choose which stores we go to and which not to, because they'll uh, just, well, not to mention, you know, kicked off of Twitter for your viewpoint, kicked out of Costco because you don't have a vaccine card. Um, what I've been pushing for recently is, you know, we need to have some kind of anti-discrimination laws, especially for big tech, but writ large, you know, it's, 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 the idea is when you're part of the public space, your public, the notion of a public establishment is that you're an establishment, you've decided to become public rather than private. You're saying, I've got a shingle. Anybody who just looks up, they can plan their day, no matter their sex or, you know, sexual orientation, race, age, whatever. You can just plan your day. You can come here and no one's going to say, no, I don't like that. You know, but it's got to be your viewpoint as well. It's, and it's got to be on the basis of whether or not, not something, you know, you, you're, you're allowed to come here, whether or not you've been injected with some kind of uh, uh, thing that we think that you should have, as long as you're not sick, actively sick and, and, you know, coughing all over the place, you should be allowed to come in. There need to be had some notion of a public establishment, anti-discrimination, which extends beyond that. And you, I still am open as a libertarian that I'm always concerned about those sorts of things. You can't, I, I like the idea of, of course, but, but the reason that we ban we prevent public establishments from being racist, for example, is not because it's wrong to be racist. They can still have all kinds of wrong opinions and donate to causes that you don't like. Um, the reason that we do it is because you just can't have a functioning society where you have to say, oh, uh, last week, uh, you know, this particular supermarket was not, was, was allowing Middle Easterners in. Are they, do they still have that rule? You can't right. like live your life dealing with that kind of, or, you know, there shouldn't have to be absent, but figure out your race and your gender and all, which place accepts you're not. You just have to have this notion Citizens, anybody's expected to be able to go there with their faces unwrapped and without some special injection to get there. And you can still be a private organization, be as discriminatory and you know bigoted as you want, but then you got to be a private club or some other. You know, you're not a public establishment with a typical shingle. You come up with some kind of distinguish, distinguish, uh, and that also handles big tech. 
Twitter, you spend your life. This, uh, the idea that someone can censor you based on, on the terms of service after being in Twitter for 10 years, it's like joining up, going to an apartment complex is the analogy I have. And you spent, you have, you built your life, all of your friends, you've got, you live in this apartment complex, or maybe it's a HOA, it's even a condo, you own it, but the HOA, and you always have whatever conversations that you want out in the public space, whatever the pool is or whatever the, the rooftop or who knows. And suddenly they just say, you know, we've changed the rules. You're not allowed to talk about this anymore. You just, just, we're not going to let anybody talk about these sorts of things. And you could say in the terms of service said, like, we can change the rules at any time. And people are not allowed to say it's certainly, it's up to us at any point we can, no, you can't do that. that that's ridiculous. In the kind of commons areas where you have this general idea that you've built a life, you can't have so the, the same kind of general anti-discrimination writ large needs to apply to big tech as well as would apply to you know a condo that did that would would get the crap suit out of them. Same thing for are we really build our lives on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter? These are not just lives of our friends and our social life, which is of course important enough. These are actual livelihoods that are built around this, and these yeah. are the their very reputation networks that are crucial for exactly the kinds of truth finding that societies um, have to move toward. Right. And, and they realize that, and that's why they wield this power. So, so viciously is like, they know, and, and I, I do it all day, every day. I, I mold and I, I modify what I actually want to say to barely skirt under their, their rules, you know, like that's, and that's, that's what I have to do it, because I've spent the past two years building up this account and building up the show and it would be, super damaging to yeah. to my continued growth if they were to nuke me so that i mean they know exactly what they're doing and well in slightly in their defense which i don't want to get defend them too much but the the, the sense in which in, it's in their defense they need a, a an anti-discrimination writ large like this for their own uh cya because from their point of view if you're twitter um there's a lot of bad stuff that's going on there's you know there's a lot of bad behavior there's six you know there's a lot of illegal like actual illegal behavior that can go on sure. and the government is on their ass you got to try to you got to stop all of this illegal behavior and so and so that what they're they have to come up with some notions of policing for certain kinds of levels of things and then they sort of get to the next and they if they just and so if they just had it so that the law was required, was told them, no, you cannot even do that. Other than let's say policing of you know child pornography or whatever kinds of things, you're just not even allowed. That gives them the cover that they don't have to sort of do hoop special hoops to convince the government that they're being good. A lot of this are doing to show how good they are so that they don't get further, uh, uh, you know, government on their backs. They're trying right. to get the government by doing the stuff that the government likes. So some of this is is the the government incentives are such that you know these big tech companies are trying to act what they believe is responsibility and will get the government off their back. It may not even be, you know, it could be that Jack really, his initial intuition is what he's going to, I probably believe in the beginning, he thought this would be great. People should just be free to talk unless it's child pornography and bullcrap like that. We'd want to stop. That would be great. But over time, it gets really messy and the government starts to push pressure on them. No, you got to stop this. Anti-discrimination writ large like this would give them the cover they need, but not to, to push back on the government. Yeah, that's that's a concept I hadn't considered. So I'll have to mull that one over a bit further. The the big debate amongst the libertarians over the past week, I mean, I, I'm happy to report that I think that my ilk are winning this battle of ideas. Um, but the the vaccine passports and having governors come out and ban them. And many libertarians, based off of principle, and I completely respect this perspective, are are saying we don't want governors telling private businesses what they can do. And as someone who is now come, come around to the concept that 
any of these businesses that were allowed to stay open during lockdowns, any of these businesses that received PPP loans and bailouts and everything else, to consider them private businesses at this point, I think is a stretch. And I think that allowing, as their competitors were crushed under the weight of lockdowns, while they got you know tremendous market share, Amazon being the best example of a company that was just benefited unbelievably by having all the small mom and pops go out of business, to now turn around and say that these big companies can implement vaccine passports. Oh, and also it's going to be under the purview or at least have the guidelines laid out by the federal government. I, To me, it feels fascistic. It feels like a fascistic model that is trying to basically, without having the government directly take our rights, they're trying to get the businesses to do their bidding. What What is your perspective on having governors intervene to make that a legal do you do you side with that? Are you as hesitant as others? I, I personally am, as a last resort, I'm a supporter of the governor's banning it, but I haven't come to that conclusion lately. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I certainly am hesitant as a libertarian, classical liberal on all those sorts of things. You know, and I was originally, you know, when I was younger, I, I, my position was like, yeah, if you want to be the racist, you know, restaurant in your city, go, you know, it's up to you. It's your place, your property, and you can be as racist as you want. No one's going to like you, but whatever. But I, I've changed my viewpoint on that has, has come around in the sense that, I mean, I, I, I still think people, you can't control people's thoughts. They're going to be jerks. They're going to be jerks. But there has to be some, in any society, you should be able to create some kind of social contract, even amongst libertarians. We're like, let's just call this, we're going to hereby call it a public institution. You label yourself as a public institution, then you've agreed that you're open to anybody, anybody, everybody, you know, you just open uh, in terms, and that includes masks and injections and political point, point of views and anything. anything. You're just open to the entire public to freely enter. And of course, you're free to not be a public institution. You can still then, once you're not, then you're in this other category. You can do whatever you want. So th- th- this is not, this is not uh, inconsistent with libertarianism. No, I think that's a, that's a great compromise, actually. And even if you thought it was inconsistent, well, at this point, we already have uh, exactly that, the, uh, something that you would deem to be violating it on the basis of all the other anti-discrimination laws, which are already in effect. And right. so if you're going to have anti-discrimination laws that are like this, you might as well just go bloop, bloop, and plop out into these other important cases. And it's hardly changing the degree to which you would think that you've been violated. You know, and uh, it would just be a, a better utilitarian solution, given that it's not consistent with your version of libertarianism. I think that's that's a tremendous explanation and and a kind of a compromise position that I had not heard anybody present. Do you know that anybody is actually pushing that concept as, as having not two tiers? Here. As far as I know, not here, but um, um, the um, the in, in Scotland, uh, they ha- have apparent. Uh, sorry, in Ireland, they have something along these lines. Uh, and I and I don't. I was been meaning to read up on it. Someone had emailed me who follows me on Twitter and sort of sent me. And it, it comes out of the northern issues with Northern Ireland, and so so much. Um, uh, it was Northern Ireland British thing, I think, not really an Irish thing. So I can't remember exactly, but they did this because there was so much political discrimination. It was disproportionately political discrimination there because of their history that they had to add the political side and the viewpoint side to it, um, which hasn't happened in some other countries for sort of different historical reasons. But I don't know of anybody that's been pushing that. I've been trying to, I, I'm going to do a science moment soon on that and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, I haven't gotten any traction on this yet. Well, let's hope, let's hope your, uh, your ideas gain some steam and hopefully this will start that process because uh, I totally agree that we need we need something. We need, we need something because, uh, just put it bluntly, I am not going to live in this country with vaccine passports if they are 
uh, ubiquitous. You know, if I, everywhere I go, I have to present one. I don't intend on getting this vaccine. I'm a healthy, you know, young person and I, I don't see any requirement for it for me personally. I'm completely open to anybody else that wants to get it to get it. I could care less. Um, but if it's mandated, the last thing you'll see me doing is getting an injection. So, right. Yeah. I mean, and I say that, but a part of me, I, I want to be strong on that. But then at the end of the day, sometimes if society around me just keeps going, I, and I, I can't go to Costco, I can't go to even a, my bars. All, and at some point, like you just can't fight the system. You just say, all right, I give up, you know? And right. I, at some point, that's what we all do. This is why I wear a mask, right? In some sense, the idea, and I, of course, it's, the vaccine passports are incredibly uh, wrong. I don't see no reason them at the, from the utilitarian side, to liberty, it's all, none of it makes sense. But the idea that we are forced to cover our identities, our only breathing holes, our emotional uh, expressions, which of course is our, our, our speech too. Our, yeah. All of these things that we've already been doing to go shopping, to go to restaurants, to go all of these things that we've already been doing is to me just as much of a violation of our, of our rights and our sanity because none of this is even functional and has all these harms. Um, so how it became, you know, we when you want to stop these sorts of things, you have to stop when they said just two weeks, that was two weeks too much. You should just stop at just, it's not just to go even just two weeks because it's going to be much more than that. You had to stop when it's one mask. If you're going to try to argue against the two mask rule, well, you've already agreed to one mask, you know, going from N, N to N plus one is never as big a deal as it was when you went from zero to one. Right. And at this point we're already at, you know, 37 trying to go to 38. Uh, it's really hard to push back now. And, uh, because we've already accepted 37. Oh, I agree. It's it's much harder to stop it now than it was back then. But ultimately, I don't feel like we have a choice. And, and to your point about we, yes, eventually you will have to cave if it, if it becomes implemented. Um, uh, personally, I'm financially free and I, I, I can leave. So I will. Um, but I, I realize that's not the option for many people. Many people have family ties and, and work ties and things like that. So I because I'm in a, in a really advan- advantageous position, I'm trying to risk and sacrifice everything on behalf of those people that can't because i really i really think it's necessary i think that we like yes we should have stopped it before we probably should have stopped the government when they tried to implement the income tax in 1913 you know we should have we should have we should have we should have but we can't we can't go back all we have is now so i'm i'm taking a stand i know a lot of people are um and and i hope that our our will outwills theirs um uh, you know, we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. Well, you're, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, certainly the, the risks that we're taking and, and someone who's an academic, I, I left acad- proper academia to start, you know, to do my own research institute about 10 years ago, which I probably should have mentioned as background. You know, I, I was at Caltech and I was at RPI as a professor. I was in Ireland as a professor, computer science professor there in various places in, at a Duke, Duke university. And then I eventually left academia proper to start my own research institute with my colleague, same free x uh, guy that started with free x with me awesome our research uh, research and in, in independent sort of entrepreneurial stuff that then keeps me independent but still i'm an academic and you know we're, you know i've done three or four books since i've left academia proper including the next one but when you stick your neck out and of course when i stuck my neck out in march i didn't know whether it was going to how it was going to go was you know how the left and right was going to orient it i didn't know i just this is just ridiculous you got to fight this before but as it turns out of course the left is disproportionately now on the authoritarian side all my colleagues are disproportionately on the left. So this is not good for my career in terms of, of a scientist. All it's doing is they hate me now, right? And I haven't had good things to say about any of them because where the hell have they been? They haven't stood up 
all of the supposed value of being intellectual and academic and having a, an address next to your name that's fancy is to come forth with some independence, be truly independent and say, look, you know, th this doesn't make sense. And here's my laurels for a while. Instead, they've all been one echo chamber saying the same damn thing with pretension and, and coming into smug pretension against anybody. Yeah, and well, so that, that's exactly, uh, I believe that you earn those laurels by having courage. We like in a healthy society, the people that, that are honored, the people that are, are looked up to with esteem are the ones that are willing to be self-sacrificial when it matters most. And, and you if like you don't a mask. You like wearing a mask while you ride a bike, <laughs> no, 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 I don't mean that <laughs> quite the opposite. I, I mean, I mean that the, the professors like yourself that were yeah. willing, that were willing to actually fight the, unbelievable hordes of mindless zombies that that are in support of these these policies I, I just think i think it's really courageous i really appreciate it i i think that anybody that's out there that's in a position of power it's even more important than the people that are powerless to actually you know stand up to actually say what you believe and to push against this trend let people know that you're not alone that's the biggest reason my show has grown so rapidly is because I'm not, we are not alone. There are a lot of people out there that yeah. see this, how we do. And, and even if they don't see it exactly how we do, they value freedom. Even if they're afraid of the virus, they still value freedom. And they're still concerned with the totalitarian bent that our government has taken. And I think that, uh, you know, any inspiration we can give them, if we're going to, if we're going to turn back the tide, uh, it starts now or it doesn't start, you know, right. the inspiration they need is not just the facts. It's the confidence by someone like you and me. Yep. Um, is what sways them is because that confidence is us putting our social capital on the line and they believe us they go holy crap they're putting so much social capital on the line it's probably the case that they're not messing around they really believe it there you that's, go yeah uh, if i was going against the trends uh and i was wrong i would certainly be paying a price for no fucking reason because it's not like i'm making a ton of money from this so um yeah it's it's purely a labor of love anyways mark I, i've kept you past the hour um you guys can follow him at Mark Changizi on Twitter. He is one of my favorite followers, so definitely do that. Uh, he's also got the freex.group. Is there any other um, sources? Uh, for I've got a Science Moment YouTube uh, channel the last season, the last 30 or so are all COVID, infectiously COVID hysterical. Uh, not me being hysterical, but... Yeah. <laughs> Evaluating it. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much, Mark. It was a blast. Shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. World premiere. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of will come and it'll go. The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe. Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening. Scared Hollywood left these lyrical fappening. A typo with Luke might bring the nooses. We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses. Freckles and Brit didn't know I could spit. Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit. Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcast sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty now hear me roar Beat running up, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house No malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copy the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Liable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky Smooth Tom was the only sound Getting so 
hot must be Eric July Screaming in the mic and rip a 59 Miles to Ray showed that black guns matter Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war but we're ready You know I be bopping ain't rock steady Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show